Welcome to episode six of the Filming Mentors podcast. Number six. Didn't think I'd get this far. My aim is to keep going up to 10 and see where we're at. And I really do appreciate all of your comments and your feedback. Um, to those that have left those comments and feedback, I, I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to do that. Even if it isn't a good review, if you want to give me some criticism, constructive would be preferred. Please do. I'm, I'm ready to hear some of that as well. This week, I'm talking to Dan Lanigan, who is a props collector. He has been collecting movie props for a number of years and has some amazing items in his collection, which we'll talk about in the interview. Dan and I have become friends ever since he and his business partner, Jason Henry, um, a TV director, uh, they both tracked me down uh, via my filmentries.com website, having seen some of my work. Back then, they were in pre-production on a show that they were developing uh, about movie props, and they'd seen some of my work, and they thought maybe I could help them in some way. And I did end up being a consultant on that show for for a month or so. I did end up with a little trip out to Los Angeles and stayed in Burbank and got to meet Dan and Jason and the team. And it was an interesting time because we were working on some research for some episodes that they were hoping to do at that point. Some of which, hopefully, if they get a second series, will uh, will be in there. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Dan, and I'll be back, as usual, with a little bit of jabbering at the end. So Dan, you're a big movie props collector. What was the point where you first looked at a movie and said, I want to have that, and what was that? Oh, Jamie, um... That's uh, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, I I think when I was a kid playing with the Adat toys, the Kenner Adat toys, um, uh, made me obsess about those pieces, those those stop motion puppets. And it wasn't until I was older that I realized, you know, the Adats were stop motion and they were real. Uh, I would mm-hmm. say that's probably, without knowing it, the first piece that I really wanted. And I think it'll probably be, be certainly a piece that I never acquire. <laughs> those those are <laughs> uh, locked up tight in the Lucasfilm vaults, uh, rightfully so, and being protected. And um, But yeah, I mean, that's kind of, uh, the AT-ATs just were just so cool. You know, the Imperial Walkers, the all-terrain armored transports, whatever you want to call them. Um, such a cool piece of engineering. Looks like an animal. Looks like a machine. Looks like a crane, which I've got a history of working uh, with cranes, and so does mm. my family. Uh, it's you know remind me of the way an elephant walks. I'm obsessed with elephants. It's kind of bringing everything together. Stop motion. It just Phil Tippett. It's just it's it was it was the the stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's something amazing about those designs of those ships and characters in those original movies that. I still do it now. Like I see them around. I see those shapes around. Like that you're talking about the lifts for the for the containers, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So I was in Korea a few years ago, and we went across this huge bridge, and you just saw in the distance all these cranes lined up. And me and my mate Christian, who are both Star Wars nuts, just went, "There's a load of Atats over there." Because <laughs> what was clever about those designs is they drew from things that were all around us, so they always look familiar. And I don't know about you, but it feels like those things have always existed in my life. I can't. Yeah, I I agree with that. I agree with that. And you know, the thing about it is uh, what's great about the design work uh, from the original Star Wars films is because of, yes, these are science fiction ships and and vehicles and 
I guess you call the Adit a vehicle. It's kind of a walking robot vehicle, but because of the wear and the way it's designed, it feels like a real thing. And and based on that, you know, and they were, they, I think there was some design similarities or at least some, some um, uh, influence from the gantry cranes that you see in the ports. Uh, a funny story is when I was younger, when Empire Strikes Back came out, um, my company that my father started many years ago, MyJack Products, we built these giant industrial cranes called uh, Travelifts. And we had one that was being erected at a, at a rail yard, being put up at a rail yard. And when Empire Strikes Back came out and everybody would call it the Imperial Walker and they actually put Imperial Walker on the top of the crane at the time. So it's, <laughs> you know, there's this kind of back and forth art. Uh, reality inspires art and then art inspires reality. It's, it's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. What is it about props that, what do they do for you that just watching the movie doesn't do? What, what is it about a prop that you need to have it and need to hold it? By, by having a, a piece of the film, a, a prop that's used in the film that's connected to the history of the film, it helps you connect to the film even deeper. You mm -hmm. know, a prop without seeing the film it doesn't give you that much. I mean, it might be a great piece of artwork and a lot of these pieces are really beautiful pieces of artwork, but it's until you understand the story of the narrative that's being told on the film and then you see this this icon iconography of these pieces and then you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then you connect to it. And then by connecting to it, you learn more about how it was made and then you're connecting to the film even more. So it just helps you connect to these amazing films in ways that, you know, it's it's like the adult version of when you buy when you, when you would play with toys when you were a kid. You're not playing with these props, mm -hmm. but it allows you to to live in that world closer in a more adult way, in the ways similar to but different to the people that worked on the film. Yeah, yeah, I can see that entirely. I mean, I've been to a few exhibitions over the years, and just sharing the the same space with some of those props and those costumes really gives you a buzz and you know you the other thing that I, I'm always amazed about is the level of detail that is on a lot of these props that we're talking about you know you you see them on film and you you understand they exist within that frame for that time and they weren't they were built just for that right they most of the time right last. yeah but having look having seen some of those things close up it's incredible that they would still particularly those ILM guys would take from Tamiya models and off-the-shelf models of tanks and ships and combine all these little tiny details. Yeah, I've, with the I've models been blown and such. Away. Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, incredible, incredible stuff. Well, from a from a technical standpoint, you never know how close the director is going to want to shoot the piece, mm. whether it's a model, whether it's a hand prop, whether it's a costume. But even if that's not the case, if if the artists that are building these pieces have their wherewithal they're gonna they're gonna want to make them look as good as possible because it's their artwork it's their art form you know and it's mm. and the only time at least when you're making a movie you don't know if it's going to be successful it's the only time people are going to see it now star wars is you know i wouldn't say an exception it's maybe it's an exception how successful it is but when mm -hmm. these prop makers are building these pieces you know this is you know to make it is better to make the piece as interesting as possible, so perhaps it will get more screen time, and then people will be be able to appreciate their artwork, and it and that's part of what makes these props so amazing is because there's so much more detail that the camera doesn't even see. Yeah, 
I always think of those things, those scenes in some of the uh, those moments in some of the old behind the scenes documentaries, particularly on the Star Wars movies, where you've kind of got George Lucas walking in, checking out all of the little maquettes of the designs that Phil Tippett yep. have come up with, and you know he might even put like a, a stamp on a drawing to say good, bad, or yeah, I remember that right. And they're trying they're trying to impress the director, of course. Right. So they're trying to make it as detailed as possible, and hopefully they get their little moment in, in the limelight. That's right. Well. That's right. But how much? How much of the of what you do as a prop collector is in the hunt for you? Do you you must enjoy the hunt, look, looking for those props and trying to track them down? Yes, the hunt is uh, a ton of fun, and it's also a major headache. But that's what makes it so much fun. Um, you know, it's it's certainly not the same, but it has a similar feel to you know, an archaeologist digging through the sand, you know, Indiana Jones-esque. Um, certainly, it's not nearly as dangerous and not nearly as uh, uh, exciting, but it's fun to, as part of the process of hunting, you get to meet some really interesting people in the research you're doing, both collectors and people that work on the films. And, you know, the community behind the props, there's a lot of really great people, both behind the camera and, you know, in the collecting uh, uh, circles. There's also some bad guys out there, but mostly it's good people. That's a good point because a lot of people often think of prop collecting as purely a transactional thing, but it's about the environment, it's about the people, it's right. about the world that you're immersing yourself in and, you know, getting pleasure out of that. I mean, I would, you know, I've just looked through the, the prop store catalogue this evening. Oh, it's amazing, continuing. isn't it? There's some incredible items on there. Yes. And I've sent several messages out to friends saying, you know, shall we go like halves or fifths on something? <laughs> you know, just just anything. And we, I'll have it for 2020. You can have it for 2021. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good way to, to, to acquire a piece, but not a great way to keep friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what, what we've not mentioned is that you uh, recently had a Disney Plus show called Prop Culture that you worked on and presented and used your expertise on. It was a great series. And if anyone has not seen it, I absolutely recommend it. We, we got Disney Plus just for that reason. I hope you think it's a great <laughs> series, Jamie. You worked on it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, this is how we met, yes. isn't it? So Dan, Dan and the director of the show, Jason, approached me a couple of Decembers ago, yes. now, just out of the blue via my website. and uh, Because asked, we were fans of your filmumentaries. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. again, that always blows me away that there are, there are fans, you know, which, which is great. And you sort of had seen what I'd done and the kind of Absolutely. deep dive that I do and thought maybe this guy might be useful. Yeah, you think, no, right? you and you were. It was great. We, we reached out to you and uh, uh, wanted to see if you were interested in helping us dig up, uh, you know, some background information and certainly some of the amazing uh, footage that you had been archiving for years on a number of different mm -hmm. projects. And uh, you helped us on that part, and then we became friends, and, and now we're trying to develop yeah. a few things on our own. So who knows what that future is going to lead to, but, you know, I, I love working with like-minded people and people that are smart. I wouldn't say I'm smart, but I certainly like to work with people that are smarter than me, but that also like the same stuff. And uh, I, I definitely <laughs> feel that's the case with you, Jamie. Well, I appreciate that. It's the same. It feels the same for me, but the other way around. Um, but I, I, you know, I always... Uh, 
you know, I'm always gratified by people that find my stuff kind of organically, as it were, and have come across it and enjoyed it because I made it for me, really. And I made it for people like me if they exist out there and you put your thing out there and you hope that people are going to enjoy it. And your Prop Culture series, I thought it was a great success. What it did was it reminded us of those things that we talked about a moment ago, making that connection to a prop and right. being you know, more immersed into it. But in the show, of course, you, you reunite people with some of the iconic props and items that they, you know, maybe as a childhood star, for instance, or, you know, 40 years ago, 50, 60 years ago even, um, were were handling back then. And it does have this emotional resonance for people, doesn't it? It does. It does. And, uh, you know, as a collector and as someone who has, you know, met some folks that have worked on these films in my research in the past for my own collection and for pieces that I've picked up, um, you, you get a sense that, you know, this, these artifacts from these projects that these people worked on are generally important, you know, not always, but, um, if the film is successful and it's a good memory for the people, they will, connect with it and and the further back it goes the more likely they haven't seen it so we were able to get some really interesting pieces uh uh connected with some people who worked on the films and and it was great moments uh to be there in the room with and and to be able to record i think uh we had uh a lot of really fun uh uh shoots because these people are interesting and they're real humans and and that's what, what, you know, watching movies is about is, is living the world. And when you work on a film and then you go back to it many years later, uh, you know, it's, it's tough working on a movie, but you forget all the hard times. You remember the, the good times. And by bringing these pieces and connecting them with them, I think that just helped that uh, bring that out. A particularly emotional one with um, Karen, who worked on Mary Poppins. Karen Dotrice. Yes, Mary Poppins. Yeah, and you reintroduced her to her little outfit and, and everything. And just seeing that um, genuine reaction on her face, it was really emotional. Me and my wife were kind of choking up, you know. And it's... <laughs> I was too, actually. Yeah. Well, think about it. From, from Karen's perspective, you know, she was, a, she was a little girl when this movie was made. And, and ever since, you know, Mary, you're the little girl from Mary Poppins. It's an, an, an amazing film. So to go see the jacket that she wore when she was a child in this huge film that changed her life uh, and then reconnect it with a hat that she was gifted by a friend of hers that was in the film as well, it was, it, it was a pretty special moment. Yeah, it really was. And there are other, you know, there were, there were movies um, in the series that I thought, oh, is that really that interesting? I'm not sure if I'm going to like this episode, but every single episode, every single time there was an emotional reaction to it. Like even, um, what was the episode? I didn't think that Narnia was going to interest me. And then right. I watched it with right. my kids. The first time I watched it, I watched it with my kids. And of course, they're of that generation that loved that movie. Probably they were a little bit young when it first came out, but they found it on DVD and things. And they were absolutely blown away that that stuff still exists and people kept it and it was in such good condition and the reaction of the cast to it. And I think... You know, whatever film the prop is from, whatever film floats your boat, it's it's always going to have a connection somewhere, isn't it, to somebody? Because, you know, part of the reason I did the filmumentaries was because I also always wanted to tell the stories of not just 
the main players, the director, the actor. I wanted to talk to everybody and find all those little stories that wouldn't necessarily come out. And I think your show does a really good job of reminding us of that human connection and that, um, you know, that endeavor to make something special. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that bit, that that uh, kernel of information, that idea that you had that you used for your film elementaries is actually one of the motivating uh, ideas I had for pop culture. You know, the original idea was to lean more into the folks that built everything than the actors. And, and ultimately, I think we found a good balance of, of the people who are in front of the camera and the people who are behind the camera. Um, but that's, yeah. you know, I want to celebrate the Tom St. Amants, the Charlie Crowells, you know, the people that you don't necessarily know their names, but you certainly know what they've done by these amazing films. And because um, those are the people that I've interacted with, as I'm, I imagine you have in making these things, and they're just wonderful folks and they're real people. And I, you know, they mm -hmm. need to get a little bit more love, you know? So in success, it's great that this show is able to do that. Yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to Dan and behind him on the shelves, I see, you know, it's strewn with props and items from movies I love. But you own some really cool, interesting props. What Have you got a particular favorite, Dan, that you you really hold in, in high regard? You know, um, I, 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 there's a lot of pieces in my collection that uh, are important to me. And I collect mainly because of what moves me emotionally and intellectually uh, from a and creatively from a from a film perspective um but um probably the top piece is probably the blade runner blaster that i have um which was uh the the hero from blade runner that uh harrison ford who played rick deckard uh held uh and used for most of the film um that film has always been very important to me in many different levels and, uh, you know, that's just it's just kind of one of those pieces that just reminds you of why you love film. And um, and it's got a great mystery behind it of who built it and what happened to it. And just, you know, there's just so many different things. But I mean, I love Indiana Jones films. I love the Raiders films, uh, minus the, the bad dream of the fourth one. In most cases, uh, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of the last one, but. Um, Empire Strikes Back, I love. I don't collect on Star Wars just because it's such a crazy market. But, you know, Stop Motion, Nightmare Before Christmas is big for me. You know, it's just all of these amazing, cool stuff. Um, uh, eventually, hopefully, Marvel will start selling some stuff because I love Thor. Uh, I've always been a, a, a fan of the character, so I would love to get some of the stuff from that film. Um, you know, it's just... I, most collectors will will collect from the heart. There are some collectors out there that do it mainly for the, f the financial investments. You do need to think about that when you mm -hmm. collect, uh, especially nowadays because things are so expensive. Um, you know, you have to buy it mm -hmm. as if you can turn around and sell it. But at the same time, I, that's not what drives me. And um, what, what do you think about the, the replica side of things? Because obviously not everybody has the opportunity to own an original prop, but there are now... Um, licensed replicas and things like that. What, what's your feeling on those? They're great. I think they're um, they are a way to share that wonderful feeling and connection to the film um, 
so that more people can can access it. You know, the problem with screen use props is, you know, there's not many made for these films. Um, I got into it early enough that I could kind of get connected to it. I, I actually have replicas uh, and I uh, Lord of the Rings replicas. I've got some Star Wars replicas. I think they're really interesting. From a prop collector who collects originals, replicas can cause problems with authentication because sometimes people will take a replica and modify it and then sell it as an original. So, you know, there's some some deviousness mm -hmm. going on with that. That's that's completely separate from the fact that I think replicas are good for fandom and have helped build up this cosplay world. I think it's it's great. It's a great way to kind of feel connected to those these films. And there's some great artists doing and great companies doing some really cool replicas of of some really great pieces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've thought about it often. Just getting a few, the Atat being one of them actually, because it's one of my favorite designs. Yeah, the Master movies. Replicas. They they did two of them, and I've got a actually, I've got a couple of both. Uh, if the the next deal we're yeah. doing works out uh, uh, on the side, I'll send you it. I'll send you one of them. I've got a couple of them. I tried to build. The reason I have a couple of them, I'll tell you, they're big. The reason I have a couple of them is I want. I had this idea, fifteen years ago. I was doing still photography at the time, and I wanted to build a photo diorama of the, the Battle of Hoth. So I bought a couple of these mass replica ad mm -hmm. I did some different scale ones. Now I've got multiples. I can't let them go, but I'd be happy to send you one if uh, if our bu little business venture happens. <laughs> well, you, you you do know I'm recording this, don't you? I know. I know. <laughs> I'm going to hold I, you to that. <laughs> I, I expect you to. I expect you well, to. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's interesting, though, the whole... Um, idea of preserving these props because you know part of the another reason that I did my film entries was because when my grandfather passed away he was a great storyteller my grandfather when he passed away all of his stories were kind of gone and we're trying to get them from memory and no uh, there was right. this and there was we couldn't remember the details and I, I got into the idea of speaking to these people that worked on these films that I loved in some way to create an archive to make sure that future generations could hear these stories and in the same way props can be viewed in that way, can't it? And how much? Oh, absolutely. The the storage process is important. I mean, it's a huge issue, right? Because some of this stuff, as I said, wasn't designed to last. Depending on what it's made of, it can just disintegrate, can't it? It can. It can. Well, you know, the thing about prop. It's interesting about props is, you know, if you look at it from a fine art perspective, you know, the more you know about the piece. Uh, how it was made, who made it, all of that information, it helps you uh, verify its provenance. And that information is important moving forward for the history of filmmaking because, you know, if you talk to somebody who built the prop, not only will they be able to tell you the, the technical stuff of how they did it and, and what influenced them uh, creatively, but you, you can also find out how they use it on set. And that's also connected to filmmaking history. So it's all really important in my opinion and all kind of connected to the same kind of things that you're doing in filmumentaries, just from a different angle, a different perspective. But at the same time, yeah. a lot of these pieces that are made are made with the best materials to get the shot and not necessarily the best materials uh, for these props to last for many years down the road. A lot of the materials will, will dry up will start to crumble the dust. Some of them will start to goop. Oh, certain silicones will actually start to weep and, and goop up. Um, you know, there's a mm -hmm. certain uh, cloths will dry up and start. It's, it's, it's all different types of issues you have to do 
to protect this stuff because again this stuff is not designed to last forever it's designed to last until the movie's finished so that is a challenge and you're learning as you go so um it's been interesting i wouldn't say it's been fun but it's been interesting uh figuring these these challenges out to preserve these pieces yeah and I, w would you have based your decision to purchase or not purchase something um on the material it was made of i mean that must come into consideration right or yes you, well yes. i suppose it really depends doesn't it if you really really want that item well yes i mean you know there's there is um it depends on the conditions in now and what you think you can do um to keep it from getting any worse um you know certain polyurethanes turn to liquid um, that's a that's a problem with some of the nightmare stuff, nightmare before Christmas stuff that I collect. But then there's also like you know, um, silicone mask things from uh, the film The Fifth Element and Star Wars Episode One, and like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. They all use this type of silicone, which was new in the industry at the time, uh, with these plasticizers. There's some sort of plasticizers they would put into it, and it made the the silicone nice and soft and made it look fleshy, but within six months to a year it would start to 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 weep and then the paint would slide off and it just became just mush uh i've turned down pieces made of that material because as much as i want it like there's this this zap box Brock's head from hitchhiker's guide which uh the film um with um uh sam rockwell and uh mm -hmm. gosh martin, martin freeman. freeman yeah um and uh there was a zap box Brock's head that was like his his, his double head his, his his head on top of another head because the character has has two heads and he had two brains and one of them or half of mm -hmm. a brain gets cut off whatever so <laughs> uh, the the piece had already started to to sweat and that I knew was like well it's gonna go to just gonna go to hell really quickly and I didn't buy it because it was a couple grand and I'm not gonna spend that kind of money as much as I want to preserve the piece there's nothing I can do to preserve it there's some foam latexes that are in like the Star Wars masks and some of the older stuff actually can be preserved now. There's, there's, there's ways of doing it, but nobody's figured out how to preserve the, the silicone. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought then about displaying your stuff, uh, you know, having a museum of some sort or a place where people could visit your items? Uh, it's, it's always on my mind. I have, from, from mm -hmm. a very long time ago, um, I've wanted to take the pieces that I've been amassing and put them in a space that the, the you know, like-minded fans can go and see it. Um, it's just a very difficult proposition to figure out so that it doesn't, um, you know, it's, it's a very expensive process. That's why usually governments uh, create museums. Mm -hmm. But my hope is at some point my pieces will wind up in a museum, even if it's not one of mine. Uh, if I'm not able to start one, um, I would love to get uh, my collection into a museum so people can see it. But the first step is to try and do um, to do a traveling exhibit, which I'm working on uh, for a, a bunch of robots that I've collected. I've got a, an idea for a robot exhibition that I'm going to mm. I'm, I'm going to put on. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah, because I'm sure I read somewhere many years ago, a few years back, that two big Hollywood uh, peeps, I think it was a director and an actor, got together to buy the Judy Garland ruby slippers and uh, donate them to the the Museum of Motion Arts or whatever it is. Um, because I think 
you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about initially, which is about that kind of cultural heritage that needs to be preserved. I mean, they were just a pair of shoes of maybe five or six pairs or whatever it was, um, just for that, just right. for that film, never designed to last. And then they can end up being worth to somebody three million dollars or whatever it was it went for, but um, you know that film still lives on, doesn't it? I mean, there uh, there'll be people. There won't be many people still around that worked on that movie or starred in that movie. Well, it will be the kid. It will be the Munchkin kids if they're still around, I guess. Will it? But yeah, um, I I think there's very few people that worked on that film that are still alive. Mm. But then we've still got some of these items, which is great. And I think you know it really is important to to make sure that you know we can see these things in person. And I always I've always travelled to these exhibitions when I can. I went to the Stanley Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum in the UK last year, which was fantastic. Um, I went to the Star Wars one in the in Greenwich here in the UK at the O2 and I always try and go and visit these things in person just because you know for me that's that's the way I'm going to uh, going to get a connection uh, a connection to them. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting to see I mean it's it's great to see photos of these exhibitions but what seeing it with your own eyes you know in stereo where you can kind of smell it. You can you can kind of get a sense of with the color lighting and how it really interacts in the space. It really the, it's the best way to see it if you can. And that's another you know I'm a prop collector. I love seeing this stuff in person. And you know that's part of the drive. Small part, but a, a part of the drive. Is is part of the film industry now geared up? For the props industry, would you say? I mean, it was the case that these, as we said, these things were built, they were made, they weren't made to last, and they ended up in, you know, a technician's uh, garage or you know, in the attic. Or we, we've all heard those stories of things being found uh, and uncovered. But now, surely, there must be big business involved, right? Yes, I think it depends on the company and the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the more money a company spends on a film, the more aware they're going to be of the assets that are coming from it, especially if it's a Star Wars or a Marvel or a DC. They're going to track that stuff because it's important and they do know the aftermarket value. Um, I would say how they're making the pieces aren't necessarily made any more archival uh, because of that, uh, I would think they're still going to try and make them the best for the film because ultimately that's the purpose for making these pieces. But, you know, they might make more um, and they might make special versions based on the, the ones that are used in the film for for archival purposes or, you know, for exhibition and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's the, you know, the bigger companies are very aware of, of the importance of it. I mean, you know, the Walt Disney uh, Company has their own archive. Warner Brothers has their own archive. You know, they're keeping stuff nowadays. Mm-hmm. They still yeah. sell things occasionally yeah. and they throw a lot away. But, you know, they, they do have their own archives and there's a reason for that. Because mm. they know it's culturally important and to a certain degree financially important. Yeah, because you, you talk about someone like uh, Disney who, you know, uh, gave away the the bag from Mary Poppins as a competition prize. <laughs> they... I right. mean, it was a very different time, wasn't it, back then? There's the, the awareness of very how different. important these things were going to be was um, was not really fully realised. Uh, 
Uh, one thing that has always interested me about prop collectors is I'm sure each one of them has got their own little kind of uh, guilty pleasure, maybe we could call it. Like, is there a film that that you love that isn't, you know, it isn't one of the Star Wars or the Indiana Jones or the uh, Tim Burton films or, you know, is there one that's kind of way out? Oh, yes. Out? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, and, and usually those are the films that it's you can it's very difficult to find pieces from. Mm -hmm. uh, there's two films that I love that most people are, are either say, what is that? Or no way uh, <laughs> that I can't find pretty much anything from. The first one is uh, Strange Brew, which is a comedy based on uh, SCTV characters, Bob and uh, uh, Bob, uh, the McKenzie brothers, uh, mm -hmm. Bob and Doug McKenzie uh, by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. Yeah. I can't find anything from that film. Huh. Um, the other one is Ishtar, which mm. was a huge flop back yes, in the yeah. late 80s uh, with Dustin Hoffman and uh, Warren Beatty. And that's also a film that you can't find anything from. Um, you know, anything that was kept from that film was probably put back into circulation for other prop and wardrobe shops. Mm. And the rest of it would have been destroyed. So, you know, it's it's only the successful films or the films that have really unique stuff it gets kept and the more unique it is the more likely it's not going to get reused because it's too identifiable for good or for bad it's a shame isn't it that those props weren't hung on to because you know somebody's gonna love those films regardless of whether they were a box office flop or not but you know they might have been held on to but nobody thought it was important it's in the bottom of somebody's you know uh, uh box in their garage for all you know um you know and it's certainly not making money in auctions yeah, but that must be a quite a tantalizing idea for a prop collector like you, that there's still things out there in drawers and, you know, in basements and in attics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always that opportunity. And that is that is the, the archaeology aspect of this is it's kind of like archaeology in our own culture, you know, trying mm. to dig into things that may have been forgotten or lost and that connects with, you know, other people that collect antiques or collect... Uh, mm comic books or baseball cards or, you know, those kind of things. And unlike antiques, you're at least able, with your expertise, to do screen matching as well. Now, this is a big thing, isn't it? Making sure that that little detail that you can see on this model in front of me matches the detail of that model there or that prop there. It's, um, it's really important to, to know that you've got the, the genuine item in front of you. It is, it is. Uh, yeah, the... the, the, the the problem with prop collecting is there's so many different artistic disciplines that are involved in making these things when there comes to, you know, engineers and metallurgy and, and, and sculptors and, you know, costume designers and all different types of, of material that they're working with. Um, and, and trying to authenticate these things can be very difficult. But the benefit of them coming from a film is, generally speaking, you should be able to look at the movie and try and compare it. Now, um, that works only so well, depending on the resolution of the shot that you're trying to compare it to and, and how clear it is. But it also uh, works against you uh, if you're trying to confirm if something is a fake because the people that are making the, the yeah. fakes mm -hmm. are the ones that are looking at that information as well. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's a double-edged sword having big companies like the prop store curating all of this stuff because 
all right, it's great that they're able to find, you know, that this is that genuine item, but at the same time, it's going through the kind of, it's going through their funnel, which of course is gonna add a bit of money to, to the price. Um, and it takes away from that opportunity of you chancing across something, doing your own research, I guess. Well, yes, I mean, I suppose that's true, but uh, it also allows folks that don't have the wherewithal or the ability to track these pieces down that you would probably never see if it wasn't for experts like them doing yeah, it. So yeah. um, I would agree as a collector who is fairly active in trying to find stuff myself, uh, companies like Profiles and Prop, uh, uh, Prop Store and these other dealers, can't you can't bump up against them. But then there's a lot of times where you're finding stuff that they've tracked down of course, you got to confirm yourself as original mm. and real. Mm -hmm. Some of the dealers are more, uh, more uh, into doing their research than others. Um, I've found uh, prop stories generally very good. They seem to spend a lot of time. They do mm -hmm. make mistakes, but um, I feel pretty comfortable with the stuff coming from them. But mm -hmm. but you know you got to do your own research. You got to do your own research, and especially if you're spending a lot of money, you got to do your own research. Because ultimately, it's buyer beware. Yeah, one, one of the things I've come across interviewing people over the years is that they have these items and they don't necessarily see the value in them, particularly if it's a script or a storyboard. It might even be a photocopied uh, a folder full of photocopied storyboards. But because they were used by somebody who was on the crew of that film, whatever that film is, um, of course, it's going to be valuable to somebody. Um, there's two individuals I can think of in particular that I know have or one of them's passed away now, but uh, that had items that they just said, yeah, nobody's going to be interested in this. I, I sold all the good stuff. Um, but they've got things, you know, like a script with annotations from the famous director or drawings on it from the famous director. And it, I think there is a, a disbelief sometimes because these people were just doing their job and they don't understand that, you know, you look at that 2001 spacesuit that went recently, um, fantastic item. Yeah. And it went for three hundred and seventy thousand or something. Do you, do you think that was a lot? Well, it seems a lot to me. I will say it's a lot of money, absolutely a ton of money. My expectation was that it was going to go for uh, you know a half a million really? at least. Um, I think if it was because I I do think if the piece was repainted at one point during production. Mm -hmm. If it still looked like one of the main characters' uh, mm. spacesuits, which it used to, and had the original chess piece, it would have gone for twice as much, if not more. It's just the 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 the, the visual perception of what it's worth. Historically, yes. it's super yeah. important too. But you know, it's not. It's 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 a lot of things. You know, when a two thousand one spacesuit, which is arguably more important than, you know something from the original Star Wars comes up and doesn't sell for as much because it's not as shiny. I don't know. There's, there's lots mm -hmm. of reasons why things go for so much money. I was expecting, I would have bet money that would have gone for more than that. So I was very surprised. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about it as a as an absolute cornerstone of science fiction movie making. Yeah, I mean, it is a it is a very, very valuable prop in, in that regard. And it's very difficult to put a value on it. And I guess a lot of the value comes from the people that want it. Right. That's kind of sets the value to a certain extent. That is because... that is that is that's only where the value comes from. Mm -hmm. It's it's the people that want it and how much money they're willing to spend on it to put it in their collection or in their museum or whatnot. 
So, um, and, and the thing about it is, you know, the Academy, let's say the Academy won that, that, that spacesuit, which is a great piece. They probably would, would have been willing to go for, you know, I don't want, I, I'm, this is a guess by my part, but I would guess that they would have spent at least twice as much, but there wasn't someone else willing to push it up to that point. Yeah. It's, 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 it's supply and demand, you know, and, and one of the reasons these props, some of these props go for so much money is they're very iconic pieces and they're, you know, one of a kinds Mm. and and a lot of people want them. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's the craziness of prop collecting that, that what you don't really get in replica collecting, which is so much better because you don't have to worry about it being, you know, maybe there's 200 of them or 500 or a thousand, but it's still not as uh it's it's you don't have people fighting over it financially yeah yeah i'm guessing it can get pretty nasty i mean you don't have to go into any other, but um i mean you're not just a props collector though dan are you you're a director and you're a creative person what's your what's your current project what's your next project yeah uh you know um working on a number of different things um uh, a couple documentary uh, series ideas, a game show series uh, that we've got that we think is really fun. Uh, my partner, Jason Henry, and I. Um, and then we'll see, you know, uh, we should be finding out soon whether or not we're going to get a season two of, of Prompt Culture. Hopefully we'll get a season two. I think, uh, you know, it's been accepted really well. Um by social media, I think a lot of people really liked it. I'm very uh, humbled and, and honored that people really dig it. Um, but, you know, uh, a show like that, like your film entries, you know, I'm, I made it as much for myself as I made it for anybody else. Mm-hmm. I wanted something that I would be proud of that dealt with the subject that I hold near and dear to me. Uh, and, and not just the props, but movie making and the people that work on these things. So I think maybe that's why it connected uh, to an audience. Um but yeah, that kind of thing. You know, I've I I uh, uh, I I done a a feature film, uh, a comedy, um, and uh, a year and a half ago, uh, di- uh, co-wrote it, co-directed it, produced it, uh, called Izzy Lion: The Unspun Truth. It's a scripted comedy. It's very funny. It's a um, it's about the world of sign spinning, which people here in the United States are aware of. It's not so common uh, internationally. But we're moving for, towards getting a distributor for that. So that's exciting. Hopefully we'll cool. see that, uh, if not in theaters with everything going on, hopefully we'll see that in uh, 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 on demand and, or one of, the, uh, one of the bigger streaming platforms uh, soon. And, uh, you know, I want to I delve into scripted stuff. I've got um, a, a number of projects that I'm developing that... Uh, uh, you know, science fiction, fantasy, that kind of thing. I, mm-hmm. I want to do it all, man. I don't know if I have enough time, but <laughs> I want to do it all. Hopefully I can. I want to do some of that stuff with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope so. My fingers are firmly crossed. But you should be proud of that show, Dan, because as I said before, it, it, there was a, there was always the danger that it would fall into the kind of scripted reality. Oh, oh, wow, look what we found in this guy's attic or something like that. Or there was the potential that it would yeah. be purely about the money. Or that was something. my concern too. Yeah, but I think you, you, you guys found an absolutely perfect balance on that. And as I said, you made some films that I wasn't necessarily interested in come alive for me and made me watch them again, which is, I think, is a, a testament to the work that everybody put in on that show. Because I know that everybody worked their asses off 
And, we did. Uh, you know, do what you love is is that thing, isn't it? Is that saying? And you you do what you love, and, and it right. comes across. It really does come across. Yeah, you can feel that energy, uh, and if you enjoy it, hopefully people are going to see that and 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 get get excited as well. So, yeah, hopefully we get a season two. You know, got a whole whole bunch of movies that mm-hmm. I'm dying to to do episodes on. <laughs> um, you know, um, would love to do an episode on Dragon Slayer, which is one of my favorite films. Yes. Yeah. Um, a lesser known Disney film and Paramount film uh, co- co-production mm-hmm. and then uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark I mean you know that movie pretty well mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd love to, to dive into that and uh, you know you know there's just so much great stuff in the Disney and now Fox archive that uh, uh, you know we could uh, do if uh, we get the opportunity so yeah well I really hope you do crossing my fingers I still think Dragon Slayer's got the best dragon in it of all the dragon movies. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's just so, it feels so real and it's so terrifying. Did I see that in one of the auctions in the prop store thing, there was some Dragon Slayer stuff there? There, There is some Dragon Slayer. Uh, there's a uh, prototype uh, underskull, I think two prototype underskulls uh, armature pieces. And then there's a scale. Uh, a vermathrax, vermathrax pejorative scale, mm-hmm. and then some paperwork, which I might be bidding on some of that stuff. <laughs> so well, don't I, bid on it. <laughs> I'll, I'll put this out after the the auctions happened. So. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> well, Dan, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I always enjoy chatting to you. And yeah, I really do hope that we can continue to come up with ideas and get to work together and. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed it will happen. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jamie. It's uh, it's been great working with you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'll, you know, anytime you want me to come on, I'm not sure why, but I would be happy to do it for you. You got to help each other out. That's how uh, we get moving in this industry. So definitely, uh, definitely. Good talking to you, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Yeah, definitely. Cheers, Dan. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed listening to my chat with Dan Lanigan there, props collector. Uh, I always enjoy chatting to Dan. He's a good guy. And uh, yeah, we've got some exciting stuff bubbling under at the moment. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that happens. If not, I can see Dan and I continuing to endeavor to to come up with some projects for, for many years to come. He's, he really is somebody who brings enthusiasm and passion to his work. And you'll totally see that when you watch uh, Prop Culture. Next time, I'm speaking to three gentlemen who were brought together to build and puppeteer a giant intergalactic slug. I bet you can guess which one. Um, I've spoken to Toby Philpott before, as well as Dave Barkley. I've not spoken to John Coppinger, who was the guy that supervised the build of Jabba. However, we recorded the podcast. It's already done over two nights. One of the nights, it was just Toby and John. And then a week later, (laughs) Dave was able to join us after having some major technical issues at his end. So I'm just in the process of editing that now. So hopefully I'll get that up at the end of August 2020. I appreciate your continued support. Really grateful to those of you that have donated via patreon.com. Even if it's just a dollar per episode or a dollar per month, that would be fantastic because it all helps me find time to be able to do this whilst ignoring my real job. Um, but also I just love doing it. So yeah, really appreciate all the support, all the help and all the contributions that everybody's making. I've had over a thousand, I think it's 1500 listens now of the first five episodes, which is fantastic. So please do share if you've enjoyed it and do comment and do subscribe and everything else. 
Um, and until next time, be good to each other, wear a mask, all that stuff. And um, yeah, I look forward to uh, hearing some of your comments on this episode and looking forward to getting the next one done. Bye for now.